This is SciBite, episode 120 for February 18th, 2014. everyone, and welcome back to SciBite, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly science podcast, live on a Tuesday and fresh on a Wednesday over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week, now for 120 weeks, my name is Chris, and joining us as always is Heather. Hey there, Heather. Hey there, Chris. Hey, Heather. Happy science to you. Happy science. So uh, what are we going to talk about today? Today, we're going to take a look at a new Canadian fossil site protecting spacecraft with cave pigment. A per- picture with a billion stars, spacecraft updates, curiosity news, and as always, take a peek back into history and up in the sky this week. Heather, that sounds like so much intense science. I'm almost skeptical that we can fit it all into one show. So why don't we give it a shot and kick it off with, not with that one, with the news. <laughs> <laughs> So what are we going to talk about in the news segment? All righty. Scientists say that a new treasure trove of fossils has been chiseled out of a canyon in C- Canada's Kootenay National Park, hmm. which rivals a- another similar site not too far away that is the best record of early life on Earth, period. So this is the Burgess Shale. It's both a site and a type of shale. So this is, in this specific area, it is a 505-million-year-old rock formation, mud and clay. And actually, the site that um, sort of rivaled this one, not uh, 20, 30 miles away from this, is a World Heritage Site. It is in a glacier. They kind of have it very specifically set off that the only way you can get there is, like, by a specific guided tour you're not allowed to have backpacks with you or Mm. anything Mm, okay and that one was discovered in 1909 and that had more than 200 different animal species identified now what makes this type of shale uh, fossilization interesting is it doesn't just do bones Mm. this does uh, soft material like internal organs so you have arthropods you know type of are the most often creatures found in these shale locations. And these type of things, you can have retinas, you can have corneas, neural tissue, guts. They think they have some possible hearts and livers. So they're getting a pretty good picture of what these animals looked like. Oh, yeah. Very complete internal. I mean, most fossils is very, it's the bones. It's, you know, maybe some imprints on the bones, you know, Sometimes you can get, you know, skin imprintation or sure, sure. things like that. But this is a completely different fossilization sort of process where it captures the whole creature, essentially. It's almost like a photograph in some ways. Yeah, like a 3D printing. Yeah. Of these. Yeah, of yeah, these exactly. Guys. Yeah, exactly. So this new formation um, kind of rivals its sister formation not too far away. But in the first two weeks, they were able to collect more than 3,000 fossils, which represent 55 different species. 15 of those are completely new to science, all in the first two weeks. Oh, wow. Now, there's obviously really high possibilities that they're going to find many more species. 
Um, in fact, even more different types of species than at the similar site, and possibly even more than any other site in the world. So a lot of times with these, you know, you have, well, they've had, you know, 15 different discoveries already. Science is a long haul thing. I mean, in two weeks, you have 15 different things that are really off the top of the marker. Now they're going to start going through all this, getting deeper into the excavation, being able to go through everything. So some of the species that they discovered are in other places, obviously. Um, some, you know, close by, some across the world. Hmm. They're able to see uh, some of these species are actually seen in China's Qingzheng uh, fossil beds, which are about 10 million years older than this site. But what they discovered is that they had assumed that a number, one of, a number of these animals had gone you know, extinct by the time this new um, site, well, oh, yeah, this new oh, site had been discovered. Like they so wouldn't it, have had a chance to get there, but apparently they did. Yeah, not only did they have a chance to get there, which means they were more widespread, but actually the time that they existed was much greater than they had thought. They thought, okay, well, this is a species that didn't, you know, wasn't around very long. It was over in China. And now they discover it, discovered it in Canada, 10 million years different. So they're like, okay, well, now there's at least a 10 million year gap there that we know they existed. They know they existed everywhere from China to Canada. So there's a lot of different things going on. They'll be able to see, you know, all the different creatures, how long. With these type of sites, you can say, all right, this is this old, this is this old. And you can start connecting the dots about um, what creatures lived when. You can say, all right, well, this these creatures kind of died off at this point. These creatures died off at that point. Hmm. And see... Well, these were only in Canada. These were only in China. These were in both places, you know, or all other other places of the world. But these type of uh, shell deposits, I find are really interesting. They're not the exciting dinosaurs that are tromping about everywhere, <laughs> but the just the way that the shell fossilizes everything that you can see such a complete. It's it seems like a three D printing in clay, right? Mud and clay, yeah. And it's one of these things where it's a very sudden uh, clay and mud just kind of, I think in this case it was they're assuming that there was a giant influx of it, like there was a giant mudslide or something. Mm -hmm. And then it kind of instantaneous trapped everything, (laughs) fossilized it all so that we can look at it and some of the people in the chat room can be like, ew. Yeah, there is a little oo factor. That's how accurate they are. Like, if I saw one of those things walking around today, I would not want to go anywhere near that. It just looks disgusting. Uh, and that just kind of shows you, like, how how accurate the, the capture was. Uh, and it also, it makes me think about um, just a legacy that uh, some of these creatures leave uh, their stamp on the earth even after they're long gone. And how yeah. things can come and go, but the mark is left. Yeah. And uh, maybe in a million years when aliens finally arrive at Earth and they look back at our great ancient civilization, maybe someone out there will have their iPod touch with Cybite playing on it immortalized in some clay. What do you think? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I like how you're just on board with that. No problem. I'm just like, yep. I was like, anything Jupiter Broadcasting is going to (laughs) be ching on a little drive on an iPod. And they'll be like, what's this? (laughs) I like that. I like that. All right. Well, any other thoughts on this story? 
no, just kind of looking forward to seeing uh, what else they discover out of this. Yeah, no kidding, right? And uh, boy, it just uh, makes me think. I'm looking through the pictures. We have those linked in the uh, in the uh, show notes, and uh, it's just crazy how accurate that is. It really does look like a 3D printing. All right, Heather. Well, let's take a quick little moment right here to uh, say, hey, did you hear the Linux Action Show just hit 300 episodes? And we're doing something cool to celebrate. We've launched a hoodie and T-shirt and also a ladies' tee now. Uh, uh, and uh, oh, that's it's adorable too. You can get an adorable pink or white, and we also have a long sleeve white or gray shirt. The gray one seems to be pretty popular this time around. And what's really cool about this is they're limited time. They're limited edition, and each one will ship with a challenge coin. We got this new, brand new Linux Action Show logo, and I gotta tell you, it's just a perfect shape for a coin. It just, it just screamed Linux Action Show challenge coin. It's going to be a limited edition challenge coin with every shirt. You can find it by going to teespring.com slash last 300, L-A-S 300, and uh, you can grab that. The, the funds that we raise in uh, the uh, shirt campaign will be going towards the renovations of the new studio, which we will be getting at the end of this month. So just a couple of weeks away. Well, really just a week away. Well, yeah, a couple of weeks away. So go to teespring.com slash last 300 and uh, grab yourself something. Get a challenge coin. Right now we're at 365 and we need to get to uh, 754 sales to unlock it and uh, to get it to ship. And... Uh, I appreciate every single one of you grabbing. If you get one, maybe send us a picture of it too. You never know where that might end up. So thanks to everybody. Teespring.com slash last 300. Help us celebrate 300 episodes of the Linux Action Show. And with that said, I believe it's time for the News Bite. Oh, very nice. So uh, what are we going to talk about in the News Bite, Heather? All righty. Burnt bone charcoal. Used in prehistoric cave paintings, now going to be used by scientists in the titanium heat shielding of the European Space Agency's Solar Orbiter spacecraft. So, wait a minute. Caveman technology is being used to protect spacecraft? You are correct. Wow, that's amazing. (laughs) So, the European Solar Orbiter is going to launch in 2017, in theory. Um, It's going to carry a range of instruments in order to do some high-resolution imaging of the sun. It's going to be about a, a little more than a quarter of the distance um, away from the sun than the Earth is. Mm. But the temperatures at that point are 520C, 968 Fahrenheit. Yeah, that's a little rough. So, yeah, so it's the main body of it needs to take, take cover behind a heat shield. I see. Now, heat shielding itself has, for these type of spacecraft, have a lot of different needs. Mm. Uh, they have to absorb sunlight, convert it to infrared Radiate it back. So essentially, it needs to have a surface that keeps the quote thermal optical properties the same color despite years of exposure. You're going to sit something out on your porch, watch it change color over the years. That cannot happen. It has to be the exact same color despite all that time ex- exposed to UV radiation. It also cannot shed material, count at out gas vapor. Essentially, when you put what that means is when you pull down a vacuum in a material, it has, you know, little bubbles of essentially gas, mm-hmm. you know, uh, atmosphere. And when you pull the vacuum down enough, then that opens up and you have, it could be a mess. I've had, had to deal with some of that in uh, vacuum chambers where you're like, okay, well, if something outgasses, then you have some sort of sp- essentially a spray, which then can contaminate your instrumentation, which is a major, uh, which is a major deal. Okay. In this specific case, was this 
with the sensitive instruments that they have. Mm-hmm. And you, so you have to keep the color. You have to not have outgassing. You can't have it shed material. It has to maintain, you know, a static charge. Even in the solar wind, it has to be able to nullify that. So there's all these different things in order to do in order to protect the instrumentation itself. Now, there is a Coblast Technique. It is a company made that makes a titanium metal implants mm. that also sort of uses same technology-ish. It's, um, they sort of use it because it uh, takes reactive metals like titanium and aluminum, stainless steel. Uh, essentially, it has, gives them kind of an, they spray the surface yeah. with an abrasive material. So it kind of grit blasts it, you know, sandblasting it. Then that includes, uh, they call it dopant material, which is uh, has this material uh, that they want to put on there. So they're sort of quasi-replacing the top layer of, uh, of a surface with what they want. So it kind of it get bonds onto it very well. So it replaces an oxide layer on there. And then they, what they call, apply solar black which is an outer titanium sheet. So there's all these different layers that are going on. And so they have that one layer that's sort of medical uh, technology. And then on top of that, that's the solar black because that's what the black calcium phosphate. So that's essentially burnt bone charcoal. Oh, yuck. Yeah, So, but that's the same type of uh, roughly material that they that a lot of uh, cave paintings were used. Yeah, had mixed I guess that's into what they it. had, right? Yes. Yeah, it makes sense. Hey, if it works, Heather, it works. You know, sometimes uh, science holds up, even from the, from the caveman era. Uh, <laughs> that's great. <laughs> All right, well, uh, are we ready for the two-byte news? Let's go. I'll bring the band in. Come on, guys! All right, Heather, what are we talking about in the two-byte news? All right, a new European spacecraft has been tasked with mapping a billion, with a B, stars in the night sky, and has now beamed back its first picture back to Earth. Wow, I mean, that seems like quite a task. (laughs) Yes. The Gaia Space Telescope, launched in December, early December, it's going to spend five years studying the position, the motions, the properties of a billion different stars in the Milky Way galaxy. Now, it's going to be taking a lot of different physical characteristics of the stars, brightness, temperature, chemical makeup. Uh, Its hope is to kind of get a really accurate 3D map of our galaxy. It actually has two telescopes. You see it in the uh, the show. You can see the video. Yeah. So it's got two different imaging sensors in there. So every Yeah, it's going to be... Yeah, that simultaneously take the data. And so it's able to kind of use that to get a more 3D image of what's going on. Now, it is the highest resolution imaging sensor ever flown in space. It has a billion different pixels. Oof. And it's measuring an average of 2 million stars an hour. Oh, okay. Wow. That's 50 gigabytes of data every day. Whoa. And eventually we'll have more than a million different gigabytes of data. It's about 200,000 DVDs. What? What is it stored on? That's incredible. Well, it's a story and then it's beaming it back. So it's only keeping so much of it on it on the spacecraft itself at a time that it beams back to Earth. And then 
Earthlings must have all the different storage capabilities. So the the first image just came back. It's less than 1% of the full field of view. Um, now, oddly enough, they'll be able to take the picture of all billion stars in the first six months. Now, in order to take all the scientific data, they're going to spend, you know, 70 different images of all the different stars. So it'll take about five years. Okay. Um, but one thing I was really curious about and I had to do the math for was, so this is counting a billion stars mm -hmm. with a B. If in the final image of this, you had it laid out in a giant sheet and you wanted to count all the stars, you counted one star a second, it would take you nonstop a little over 31 and a half years. Oh. Well, it's a good thing we have satellites to do this for us then. Yes, and a good thing we have computers to be counting all the different stars yeah. and just like, hey, computer, <laughs> find this star. Yeah. Thanks. I don't want to spend 20 years trying to find star number 427,342. It does seem like you could spend your time doing other things. That would be probably more efficient. I, I think, first of all, the data you're, you're saying here is just blowing my mind. Uh, oh, yeah. 50 gigabytes each day. Um, that's incredible. And then I guess they... Uh, so they must then have to be transmitting all of that back because this thing isn't yes. coming back to download. It's not like they're going to dock it and download its hard drives. They're, they have to transmit all of it back to HQ, right? Correct. Hmm. Correct. So they'll take a certain amount of data and then beam it back to Earth. Well, a lot of times with this happen that they'll take data, they'll beam it back. They sort of have an A drive, B drive, you know, hold it on to the other drive until they get confirmation back from Earth. So like, yep, we got that data. You don't have to resend it. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So it'll kind of keep bouncing back and forth as they send us more and more data. I'm quite and impressed. Then, that's a pretty that's a pretty amazing thing where it uh I mean just the just the first of all, just the scope of the attempt, and then second of yeah. all, uh just the fact that they're able to even uh transmit and, and uh, manage the data levels that much. I just it seems like the remote connection, you know, I, I know we always talk about uh the rover on Mars and how it kind of has sort of a limited upload speed, more like a satellite link or a, even a modem mm -hmm. link. And so when you say 50, 50 gigabytes, I think, geez, Louise, but I suppose they have completely different transmission uh, environment for something that's uh, free wielding and flying around out there. It's not down on the planet and under an atmosphere. Yeah. Now, oh, very cool. All right. Any other thoughts on that one? No, just kind of uh, seeing how this one goes along. It's going to yeah. be a long process, this one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think so. All right. We'll watch out because we've got a spacecraft update. So how, speaking of rovers, how's that uh, Chinese rover up on the moon doing? Are we talking about that? Yes, we are. And the story on this one changed quite rapidly. Hmm. So uh, if you recall, uh, I'm not sure if I was able to speak about it. Right before it went to sleep yeah. for its uh, this last lunar night. Yeah, the little jade one, rabbit rover. Yep, the little jade rabbit rover. What it has to do is it has two little solar panels. And right before the the night falls on the moon, which lasts two weeks. Uh -huh. um, it had to fo fold both of those over so that it could help keep um, the instrumentation warm. It had a little radio, uh, radio isotopic thing and fold the little solar panels over and it helped kind of keep things just warm enough to be okay. Right. Right before night fell, one of the solar panels did not close. It was very sad. Yes, it was very sad. It was, will we ever hear from the little rover again? And it was very tricky. It was not really sure that we would ever hear from it again. No. In fact, they were sending out some pretty sad tweets. Yes. They actually tweeted back 
daylight returned February the 10th and nothing. Oh. They heard absolutely nothing coming from it. They could not get any communication with the little rover itself. Mm. They went out, you know, they tweeted, you know, loss of lunar rover, started traveling about the internets and the, um, and all the new sites. In the meantime, amateur radio astronomers and operators with UHF SATCOM said, hey, we want to listen to everything that's going on out there. So they tuned into the moon and they saw, you know, they saw eh, nothing came up. And they said, you know, on February the 13th, they said they could see, you know, all the non-responsive states. And now they could see China trying to send information to them. So like, okay, well, they can see from, then they saw signals from the lander. So there's two different things. The lunar lander, which was okay. It woke up and they actually could see signals coming back from it. They hadn't seen anything from the rover yet. Mm. Well, it was slightly expected that, you know, nothing was going to happen. On the 12th, still no evidence that, you know, everything had gone on. China was trying to uplink it. Uh, they saw, you know, a huge signal spike. They said, hey, China's actually trying to talk it back to life again. Right. So then they, they do some major scrambling. They switch on some dual band converters, switched everything up, and they hear a chirp. They actually heard the lunar lander in full chat mode. So it had actually survived, was not dead. Then, you know, the next day, China's state agency went, yes, we have recovered from the non-responsive state, fully awake. It's able to receive signals. Now, they're not going to do much with it for now. They're not traversing anywhere with it for the moment. Um, It's very much sort of wait and see about, okay, now it's... We hear it. Let's make sure we continue hearing from it. Let's figure out what happened. Most likely what happened is some uh, lunar dust got into one of the gears, which made it difficult for the solar panel to move into its proper position. So mm. will, they maybe, will they be able to move it into the proper position the next lunar night coming around? Eh, time will tell. Right. But, you know, I was kind of expecting. I saw the, the news come out of China, and it took a long time. I mean— for me, I was like, let's see. We should hear right away. We're hearing nothing. Yeah. We're hearing nothing. Yeah. That's not a good sign. China really doesn't want to say. It's not working. It's not working. <laughs> yeah, I understand Somebody's that. in trouble. And then I came back and I was talking to somebody. I was like, you know what? It wouldn't surprise me if they just came out and they said, yay, it works. Hand wave. And I was like, well, we'll, we'll see. I'm not sure. Hope. But. Amateur radio operators. Independently kind of confirms it, doesn't it? Independently confirm it. Came off from the side. It had already been announced, you know, sort of officially that it had gone dead. There was no hearing back from it. But the people are a tenacious route. That's right. And I'm, I'm really glad to hear that. I mean, now, of course, we still, like you said, we still have to wait and see if... If there is damage and it has problems deploying its solar panel, then that's going to be an ongoing issue and they're not going to send yes. somebody up there to fix it. But No, uh, not yet. Maybe if they just uh, turn on and off a few times, it'll fix itself. <laughs> I hear that because works. gears work that way. Yeah, all the time, right? By the way, lunar dust is glass. Uh-huh, you're right, right. Yeah. When the Apollo astronauts came back, they had all these different seals and things. Nope. 
flat out killed all the seals they could imagine pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, I, I remember reading about that. Yeah, so that's a it's a it's particularly challenging kind of dust, isn't it? Yes, yeah. it is very rough, very abrasive, very killer. Um, so we'll have to see. Maybe the gear will be okay. Maybe they'll do some sort of, you know, alternative way to possibly go about things if they can get that one closed up. Maybe they'll just leave that side closed up and yeah. try to work on reduced power. Yeah. Or just kind of sit in place and work there and see how long things can go. Right. But Take some pictures. Yep. But I was very surprised and very happy for them that it actually came back to life. Did not expect that whatsoever. Right. Tip of the I was I was putting it in the, the, the show notes. It was sort of an ongoing change. And I was like, oh, sad note. Sad <laughs> update. And it's like, possibly hopeful update. Happy update. <laughs> as, the, as the week went Yay. on, the, the show notes were uh, got happier They got happier. happier. <laughs> they did. Science got happier. Well, speaking of dusty rovers, are you ready for a curiosity update? Let's go. And lift off of the Atlas V with curiosity. Touchdown confirmed. All right, Heather, how is our favorite rover doing? Our favorite rover. If you remember, we've been talking about how it's been having a hard time yeah. with its poor little wheels, and yeah. they've been getting all beaten up. And uh, last week, it was sort of breaking news that it actually decided to drive over a little sand dune that they'd been kind of eyeing for a little while. It'll right. let them get to a little smoother route. And they actually were able to uh, release a uh, animated sequence of images that kind of show the rear cam as it crosses up and down the little right. sand dune that you, it goes. You get an idea of its uh, treacherous journey. Yes. Huh. That but, was pretty neat of them. Look at that. Look at an animated GIF from Mars. Yep. I was I was really hoping this would come out last like sooner. I was like, I want to see it. I know it's there. Yeah. They obviously have the images. They're obviously taking lots of them as they cross over a sand dune like this. So they have crossed over the dunes. They have now gone to a more smoother area for route for their driving. Kind of eyeing their next location and sort of taking things as they will, hoping hopefully their uh, their wheels will take less of a uh, of a beating traveling right. where they are. Will go now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So no, no, no more concerns raised the, uh, in this last week about the the damage to those wheels. Everything looks okay there so no, far. Nothing new. Yeah. Pretty much all this happened last week was traveling over the sand dune, checking out to make sure everything was okay, yeah. and now turning around and looking to the new, next place that they want to go. You ready for a little time machine? Let's go. This has that nice sub 100 vibration where we don't get that rattle. That's good because I've yeah. got I've got some groceries in the back. All right, oh. so this week the time machine brings us to 77 years ago, February 20th, 1937. Heather, what happened this week in science? There was the first successful automobile airplane combination was complete and ready for testing. What? A a a, a airplane car? Yes, the first <laughs> flight Took place on February 21st, 1937. Wait a minute. How come we don't have these today then? Santa California. The Aerobile. <laughs> this is a thing, huh? This is a real thing. They claim they had airspeed of 120 miles an hour, 70 miles an hour on the highway. Um, but you're skeptical? Well, the fact that it said claim. Yeah. Um, if I'm looking at the right picture, I just don't see this thing ever doing 70 miles per hour. Maybe I don't have a 
the right picture. Yeah, that that I was like, they I was like, oh, they they claim it did flying, and I was like, airspeed of 120, 70 miles an hour on the highway. Skeptical is skeptical. I would take, uh, even if it couldn't go 120 miles per hour, I, I, I tell you, I know some of uh, our listeners out there get stuck in traffic a few times, and I've, I have many a time fantasized about like a remote control hover platform that would come and pick up my vehicle and carry me away. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I mean, I guess, I guess they just felt like it wasn't safe. Is that why we didn't end up seeing this? Probably. I mean, this kind of a thing, it's, is it safe? How many... Random people do you want flying in their cars? Yeah, no, that's true. I feel dangerous with some of the people driving in their cars. Yeah, that that is very true. It yeah, that would be very scary. Uh, but yes. you know, it would get us one step closer to the Jetsons, and that would be fun. All right, well, why don't I recalibrate the side by two thousand? That way, we can look up into the sky this week. On Wednesday, February the nineteenth, a little after eleven p.m., about the time you're going to see the moon rising in the east to southeast, you'll be able to see Mars and Spica off to its right. On Thursday, February the 20th at dawn, you're going to see the waning moon in the south. Saturn will be to its left and off to their right, Mars and Spica. On the whole, the planets this week, you have Venus, visible before and during dawn in the southeast. It's at its brightest this week, actually. Mars is rising about 10-11 p.m. in the southeast, with Spica about mm, 5 to 6 degrees to its right. Mm. About a little over three fingers held at arm's length, and the or the actually they all have their highest point about an hour and a half before dawn, with the uh, spike kind of moving to the lower right. Then, Jupiter is high in the southeast in the early evenings, crossing nearly overhead for mid northern latitudes around eight or nine p.m., setting in the west right before dawn. Saturn rises about twelve to one a.m. local, about uh, highest at its point. In the south, at the beginning of the dawn, and at that point, it's over to the far left and more than Spica. So, the exciting times to look out for. In the morning, about an hour and a half before dawn, you got Mars and Spica high in the south. Mm. Moving closer to dawn, you got Venus rising in the southeast, when Jupiter's setting in the west. And then in the evenings, you have Jupiter rising in the southeast. Ah, that's pretty, boy, a lot of Jupiter action there. I like that. Well, uh, if you want to catch anything, in fact, uh, this just happened to us last week. We were out driving with the whole family, and Dylan says, what's that? Brought up the smartphone, got, went over to Jupiter Broadcasting, looked at Cyby 119, because it was last week, and and Heather has all of that broken out at the bottom of the show notes. This week, it's 120, and uh, if you see something and want to know what it is, just go over there and check it out, and maybe uh, send it over to somebody you know, and you look really smart. We'll yep. even let you take credit for it, as long as you just keep watching. Maybe send them a link to Cybite. All right, Heather, yeah. is there anything else we want to cover this week? Not this week. All right. Well, very good. We'd love to hear from you. Go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com. Click that contact link. You can choose SciBite from the dropdown and send it an email. Or don't forget to catch us live at jblive.tv on a Tuesday. And we have the, all the times in your local time zone over at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar. Don't forget, Heather's on Twitter at jb underscore mars underscore base. And she'll often give you a good heads up when we're about to go live over there and tweet other science goodness. Heather, thanks for the great show. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in this week's episode of SciBite. We'll see you right back here next week.